straw. I wonder, I wonder sometimes if we need a bigger door for this, just this time of the service. Anyway, praise God. He's doing a work. I ran across recently, it's, I mean, it seemed incidental, I know it wasn't incidental. Strange things happen to me when I clean out the garage. I run across old pictures or, some, you know, mostly old stuff that I just hadn't seen, you know, through to throw away yet. I ran across a bulletin. This was just a couple days ago from uh, 2015, and it was this, it would have been this Sunday, 2015, the Sunday right before Thanksgiving, and I just looked at that and just had, a, had fun. Usually, uh, if, the, if we have a bulletin like that, Linda has scribbled front, middle, back. There are notes all over that bulletin. I love her notes. Um, see if she's really listening? No, she's listening. She puts more down there than what I could ever say. But it was uh, just from where we are now as a church body and how God has blessed through the years steadily. Uh, all praise and glory to him. What a great God we serve. Uh, we're in John chapter 18 this morning, a powerful uh, unfolding of those events that led to the cross. So what we want to do, we're, we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 11. And as we read through, I would like to just make a comment or two on certain things that we'll read. John's account of the betrayal, Judas, his betrayal of Jesus. John, John leaves out some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave in, and so it's a, it's a different thing. I want to point some things out as we look at this. Then I have four points, and all are what we would call pertinent points. They're not just uh, spurious points that don't have any meaning, but they have, um, they're connected to the text and I think will help all of us in our understanding of what Jesus was accomplishing uh, there, not only in the garden, but beyond on Calvary's cross. So we'll begin there in verse 1, we'll read through and we'll make some comments as we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, so we pause there, what words? Well, he had just prayed to the Father. John chapter 17 is what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus has prayed that prayer with his disciples around him. So when Jesus had spoken these words... He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So we have Jesus in a garden here. Uh, the other 
writers tell us that it was Gethsemane. Here, John just talks about a garden. And he entered that garden with his disciples. So they're together. Verse 2, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So evidently this is a, this is a common place for Jesus and his disciples to be together, to spend time with each other. We have to keep in mind that the Bible says that Jesus, as the Son of God, had nowhere to lay his head. So the thought is, uh, is this. We don't have any record in the Bible that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, that he stayed in a house. The idea is that he would go to this garden and, as we would say, sleep under the stars. So that's important. This was a common place. Judas knew that. In other words, he knew where he could find Jesus, and that was important for what he was about. There it is. He knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples, and this was an olive grove, Gethsemane, olive press. They'd make press the olives and get olive oil. And these were often enclosed gardens. They were they'd have a little fence around it. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. That's important. Uh, so you have Judas, there you go in verse 3. Judas, having received the Roman cohort. So what's a cohort? A Roman cohort could be as many as 600 soldiers. So think about that. 600 soldiers, but that's not all. And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So it's interesting uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the representation of the official lawmaking, law-keeping body of Judaism, which was the Sanhedrin. So they have their own temple police, their own officers, along with the Roman cohort and Judas. So Judas is leading the charge. He's guiding them to where he would have expected Jesus to be. This is unfolding. This has been in the mind and heart of Judas for quite some time. And you see this large number of officials, the Roman cohort, and then officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches. And weapons. I mean, that's quite a crowd. If you and I are reading silently, we blow by verse 3 and we really don't think about the magnitude of that crowd and what that crowd consisted of. These are the officials. These are the elite. These, these are the people that have the earthly authority with regard to law enforcement and they have the earthly authority with regard to religion. And then you have the betrayer, and he's leading them. 
And there they are with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus. Now you're going to find out a lot about Jesus. And some of this will debunk what you've thought all your life. I can't. I can't help but say this, a lot of times Jesus is depicted uh, as some, or, or even in our own imaginations, as some kind of uh, mamby-pamby, uh, just, you know, kind of wishy-washy, didn't want, didn't want confrontation type of guy, but we're going to find out something totally different here. Right there it is, so Jesus, which verse 4 is connected to verse 3, so in light of what's taking place, in light of Judas the betrayer, in light of the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, these people who had wanted to kill Jesus for some time, these Jewish leaders, they're there with lanterns and torches and weapons, Jesus is going to respond somehow, some way. How does he respond? Verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Put your finger right there in verse 4 where it says he went forth because that's a volitional action. He went forth. He's going toward the group He's not running from the group. I want you to hear that. Because I think some people have this wrong assessment of our Lord that he was, uh, he'd try to hide or try to duck and cover, but no, not Jesus. Jesus is not attempting to sidestep the cross. He is not trying to avert death. Jesus goes right to the battle. And he did it with the full knowledge of what was taking place, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. We have the record, the biblical record, the New Testament record, the gospel record suggests that Jesus knew from Back in John chapter 5, that yes, it would be Judas to betray him. He knew this. He went forth and he said to them. So can you imagine? You can see the scene. There he is. Jesus is going forth. He's there going toward him, following the leadership of the guidance of Judas. And Jesus is going forth to meet them. We have two went forth. Verse 1, right there. I know you've had your finger there in that one place in verse 4 for a while. Sorry about that. We're going to verse 1. There's a went forth in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples. He's going in that direction toward the garden. At the same time, this, this crowd of soldiers and Religious officials, the temple police, and so on and so forth are coming toward him. Judas is guiding them. Jesus knows this is taking place according to verse 4, and he does what? He went forth. He's not looking for a better place. He's not, he's not trying to hide. He's not going to run. He's not going to duck. 
Jesus goes forth and he said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Simple question, simple answer. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now, Judas is there, and John puts him there, but John never tells us about the kiss. He never tells us that. John doesn't tell us that it was the Garden of Gethsemane, but we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's what took place. There's Judas right there with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they... Now, the they, though, there refers to the chief priests. It refers to the Roman cohort. It refers to the officers, the religious officers. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, that would have been a sight to see. That's what happened. There's one Jesus, he's merely said basically two words, three, I am he, and they draw back and fall to the ground. Well, that would have been a good time to make your escape. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, the these there are the disciples. Let these go their way. So Jesus is basically offering himself... And at the same time, he's protecting his disciples according to the prayer he just prayed in John chapter 17. Remember those wonderful words, Father, of all that you've given me, I don't want to lose one. Father, you keep them. You keep them. Remember the promise of Jesus in John 10, that Jesus is the, is the great shepherd and and he will not lose his sheep. He will not lose his own. In fact, he lays down his life for the sheep. So right there, that's important. Let these go their way. It's none of this, if we're all going down, we're going down together. Wasn't that? No, Jesus is protecting his own. And that not only spoke to who he was then, but that speaks to who he is now. I mean, do I need to spend 15, 20 minutes trying to convince you that Jesus Christ protects his own? Those whom he calls, he saves. Those whom he saves, he protects. He guides. And one day he'll usher us into glory. That's who he is.
like this. Verse 8 and 9 are connected, so I get a good opportunity to read verse 8 again. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I wonder what's going to happen next. You and I would never guess. We don't have to guess. It's right here. Simon Peter then having a sword. Can you picture this? Simon Peter with a sword. Seems like if anyone was dangerous with a sword, it would have been Simon Peter. He drew it. Oh my. I mean, they're outnumbered. We get that. And here's Simon Peter drawing his sword in front of a Roman cohort and all these religious figures. I wonder what happens next. The Bible says he drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Now, if you're sitting there today and you need to be convinced that Peter was aiming for the ear. Come on now. He wanted a death blow. I wonder what happens next. Oh, thank you, John, for telling us the slave's name. His name was Malchus. I wonder what he thought. Malchus, there he is. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And we say the word of the Lord, and just as soon as those words come out of our mouth, we go, but wait. What about Malchus's ear? Luke tells us that Jesus put his ear back on his head. That's Jesus. So I would believe that at the same time Jesus says, put the sword, Peter, you put the sword in his sheath. It could have gone something like this. While I put Malchus's ear back on his head. <laughs> I tell you what, the, the majesty of Jesus, the character of Christ shines through in the heat of battle. Now, not a battle like you and I think of. This is a spiritual warfare. And there's Jesus. His majesty, his glory, all of that right here for us to see as he is confronted by, as he confronts these who were, one, wanting to betray him, and then the others there to take him into custody. Father in heaven, we, we continue to be amazed at this Lord Jesus, your Son, our Savior. I pray that through this text, Lord, you will help us to appreciate all the more the character of Christ, his majesty even 
when things from a, an earthly perspective couldn't have been worse, Lord, he was fulfilling the plan of the ages. We thank you for this. Speak to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So we have a four-point uh, outline. I want us to look first at the Lord's intent. The Lord's intent. Heaven's intent. This is the plan and the determination on the part of Jesus to fulfill the plan. We've already highlighted those words in verse 1. There it is. Went forth. He's not wondering what to do. He is making a beeline to the next destination, which is the garden. He went forth. And then down there in verse 4, he went forth. Knowing all the things that were taking place, knowing, as John says, all the things that are coming upon him, he went forth. The intent you know, we see the intent of the gospel unfolding from, the, from even before the birth of Jesus, but certainly from the point in time of the birth of Jesus and going forward. We see it as Jesus grew to be a teenager, a young man. We see it as he begins his earthly ministry, that he is... He was born to die. Jesus Christ was born to die. That, by the way, will be our theme during the month of December. And we will continue in the book of John on this track as Jesus goes to the cross, as he is crucified, and we will also bring in the birth narrative of Christ from the synoptic gospels and couple those as we think of the purpose of Jesus the son of God coming to earth that it was a specific purpose and Jesus is fulfilling that purpose here in this text and we see the intent the intent Jesus is determined over there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. When Jesus is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's explaining the gospel, what does he say? He says that all this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. So Jesus is fulfilling the will of God, that predetermined plan to come to earth and die and then to understand the meaning of of that death is our responsibility as we read the scriptures. So the intent. Jesus was intent on going to the cross. He was intent on laying his own life down on the cross. Jesus was fulfilling God the Father's will in going to the cross there was great there's great meaning in that death of Christ on the cross we'll get to that secondly we see the lord's authority on display the lord's authority 
on display. I want you to look there at, well, let's, let's look at verse 6. So when he said to them, there's something else here that is going to really vie for our attention. So when he had said to them, verse 6, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So this is, this is a mysterious power. Jesus just asked a question. He's just standing there. Whom do you seek? And they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I read one silly uh, account of this uh, done by some scholar somewhere that said, well, what happened was it was like a dominoes arrangement. The first guy just stepped back from Jesus. He stepped on the other guy's foot, and eventually they just all... I was like, they paid you to write that? I mean, what in the world? I mean, come on. No, this is the power of God. This is Jesus. They drew back and fell to the ground. That's what John says. And, you know, well, let's, let's, have, some, let's have some fun in our study. Let's go to Luke 4. It's not the first time that Jesus exuded that kind of power. Early on in his ministry, this is over in uh, yeah, Luke chapter 4. Uh, it's, a, it's really in response to his first sermon there in Nazareth. He preached his first sermon and what do you know everybody got mad at him and uh and it says over in 29 and 30 in the aftermath of preaching the bible says this and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff i wonder what happened I mean, Jesus is just one guy. I mean, you'd think they'd be able to manhandle. No, he's from, he's from heaven. He's not gonna, yes, he's come to earth to die, but he's not going to die before it's time. He's not going to lay down his life before it's time. So often he said, mine hour has not yet come. And then when you get to the high priestly prayer there in John 17, what does he say? The hour has come. It's time. Well, look what happened there, verse 30. All these people want to throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went his way. They just couldn't touch him. Not until it was time. All authority, his power, the one who has the authority has the power. Jesus has all authority. He recognized that. And therefore, Jesus has all the power. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I want you to notice this. This is really important. Look in verse 5. Look in verse 6 and verse 8. We have three I am's. Three. 
He asked, Jesus asked, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am. That is the tetragrammaton, that is the name for God. And that name takes us from the here and now, limitations of time. I feel those every Lord's Day, the limitations of time. I'm, and I'm thinking others feel that as well because we have a digital clock here and we have a regular time clock there. So at some point, I got to get it, right? I, there's the digital version, okay? Time constraints. I am takes us out of time constraints. I am takes us out of space, spatial constraints. Jesus, God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, the triune God are not constrained by time or space. And Jesus often, will, well, over there, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He's not the I was. You know, you know, some of you, here's the thing. You said, well, you know, he's a, that's just so old-fashioned, you know. Here, I mean, even hearing pages turn in a Bible, that's just, listen. He's more contemporary than you'll ever be. He's not a has-been. And he's not a will-be. He's I am. He is the living God. What did the prophet Isaiah write? Yeah, there'll be a child born to us and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Here we go. Everlasting Father. He's the I am. Everlasting. He's, be, he's time, out, time out of mind. He is God and always God. Always living. And he says it three times. There it is in verse 5. I am. And then he says it again in verse 6. So when, they, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There it is in verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Jesus Christ, the I am. Uh, meaning that he is always, with reference to his own, he is always the provider of your needs. He is always, always, always your victory in life. He is always, always, always your source of wisdom your source of strength, and he is always, 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 always the speaking God. He speaks to us. We forget that. Our God is a speaking God. He speaks first, and we respond. That's why we're here today. We got his word open before us, and he's speaking to you and I. He is the I am.
Thirdly, we see the Lord offering protection to his own. Right there, verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. He is the protector of his own. Over there in chapter 10, all along about, yeah, along about verse 26. It's all good. It's just hard to pick and choose. But we're talking about the protective care that God offers those who believe in him. I ask you today, do you believe, have you trusted Christ? I ask you, have you trusted Jesus? Right there in verse 27, he says, My sheep, well, I said 26 there, let's read it. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep or not of my sheep. He's talking to these accusers, these religious leaders. He says, My sheep hear my voice. There we go. He's, a, he's the speaking God. He speaks to his own. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. The word never is in the original language. They will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one, no vast army, no nothing will ever snatch them out of my hand. And then he doubles down on that. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And then what did the Jews do? They picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus somehow escapes their intentions. The protection. We're protected. You know, we are, listen, if you trust Christ, you're considered one of his flock, one of his sheep. And he is not only the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd. And what would a shepherd do? He would protect his sheep from wolves, from themselves, from weather, from lots of things, from anything. That's our Lord. That's Jesus. He is our protection. He has vowed to protect his own. He is protecting his own. And then uh, lastly... Verse 10, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup, there it is, which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, I want to look 
as we close to the word where he says the cup. The cup. As we look at this final uh, point, which is uh, the Lord's wrath. The Lord's wrath. It's interesting that Jesus looked at Peter and he said, basically, not your wrath. Your sword won't do. Put it up. It's not what Jesus came for. But notice what he does say here. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup. We might want to know what's in the cup. We read about it a while ago. I don't know if you caught it. Psalm 75. Over there. So the cup goes way back and has a lot of history in the Old Testament. And what we're trying to figure out right now is what's in the cup. Because Jesus says, I'm going to drink the cup. Peter, you are not going to drink the cup. I'm going to drink the cup. And it's in Psalm 75, verse 8. And there are a lot of other references. We're not going to run all those, but we're going to talk about what's in the cup. The Bible says, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So long story short, what's in the cup is the wrath of Almighty God. The wrath of Almighty God. The wrath that even in the Old Testament, was reserved for the wicked. In fact, the wrath of God was always reserved for the wicked. You can go over here to John 3, 36. We just have a few scriptures to look at, but I want to make sure we all understand that Jesus on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath. The cup of punishment for sin. Right there it is in John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has what? Has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's important to understand that when you trust Jesus as your Savior, He really is your Savior. What is He saving you from? He's saving you from the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. Sin has its consequences. Sin has its penalty. What is that penalty? Eternal wrath of God. In hell, for those who do not believe, for those who reject Jesus Christ. You got you to gotta hear this and you got to understand this. It not only brings us to a point of great appreciation for what Jesus did for us on the cross, but it also causes us to look at our own sinful selves and 
Hear the good word of the Lord of how to escape God's wrath. So over here, if you go to Revelation 14 and verse 10, and then we have one more, one more place to go. Revelation 14 and verse 10. Beginning in verse 9, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the what? The wrath of God, which is mixed in what? Full strength in the cup of what? His anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Consequences for sin. The wrath of God. And then over in verse or chapter 16, the heading in my Bible says there's six bowls of wrath that are going to be poured out on the wicked. Six bowls. So what happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus hung there. He took the nails for us. He wore a crown of thorns in complete humiliation in full view. And on the cross, Christ Paid the penalty for our sin. Listen, Jesus wasn't, he was never afraid to die. He was never afraid of going to the cross and completing this mission. At the same time, he knew what the cup was. The cup that he drank down for you and me was the wrath of God as punishment for sin. As Jesus took in his own body the sins of man and suffered and died on that cross. So that one day we're going along and we understand we fall short, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And because of those sins, we deserve death. We deserve what? God's wrath. But Jesus himself absorbed the wrath of God on sin so that we who are sinful could look to Jesus in faith, trusting him that he has paid the penalty for my sin. It's like this. It's like we're prisoners. We're wrapped up in our own sin and we're deserving of divine wrath. But Jesus, who knew no sin, voluntarily laid his own life down 
and absorbed the wrath of God, which is the consequence of sin, a sin that he never committed, but he's dying for us. And when we trust him, the prisoners are set free. And if you don't trust him, one day you will drink that cup. There's only one difference. It took Jesus a good Friday. It'll take the wicked. It'll take those who don't trust Jesus all eternity. That's forever to drink that cup. There's an urgency when we hear the message to be what? To be right with God. To trust Jesus as the, as the substitute, the one who died in your place, so that you would inherit eternal life. That's as clear as I can put it this morning. Uh, if you've never trusted Christ, trust Jesus. Trust him. He did it all for you. <laughs> he did it for you. And he not only died, but he rose again from the dead. And one day he will bring his children to glory. We give him praise. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for your truth. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for these. God, if there's one who's never trusted you as their Savior, I pray today they'd, they'd trust you. They'd put their faith, their very existence in your hands and trust you. They would look to you for help, not only in this life, but they would look to you for a wonderful and beautiful eternity in the next. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, turn number 503, Now I Belong to Jesus. knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. <laughs> 